0: As we turn to your word, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring alive your word, Lord. That faith would be stirred up, our needs would be met so we could draw closer unto you, Father. That we could walk in holiness, that we could walk and serve you in holiness and with glorifying uh, Christ in our lives in every way, Lord. Thank you, Father. Amen. So this morning, we're going to continue on from last week talking about God's providential hand at work in the book of Esther. And this is part two, because last week was part one. So last week was called The Rise of Haman, and part two is called God's Hand of Deliverance. So a quick overview, a review from last week. Providence can be described as God's unseen hand working behind the scenes, being manifest in what appears to be coincidence, or random chance in a way that brings about God's purposes. God's providential hand at work could be a good sub- subtitle for the book of Esther. There are at least four things that are unique about the book of Esther. One, prayer is not mentioned once. Two, God, the name of God is not mentioned once. Three, although God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, One cannot help but get the distinct impression that God is involved in every detail of the story. Many times when believers read the book of Esther and I point out, you know, God's name is not mentioned once and prayer is not mentioned once, they go, are you kidding? Because the reality of God is so involved in the story. And four, there are five unique acrostics found in the book of Esther that reveals God's divine hand of providence. These five acrostics serve almost like God's fingerprints. What is an acrostic? An acrostic is a series of words in which certain letters, such as the first letter of each word, form a word or a message. An example of an acrostic, fear, false evidence appearing real. These five acrostics are not randomly scattered throughout the book of Esther. They are strategically placed by God in specific places in the text to produce distinct patterns, revealing God's providential hand at work. The rabbis have identified eight eight acrostics in the Old Testament that spell the name Yahweh. Four of them are found in the book of Esther. And to give an example of some of these patterns, and you can refer to my notes from last week, but to give an example of a few of them, the first two acrostics of the, uh, the first two acrostics are spelled "forward." The last three are spelled uh, no sorry, the first two acrostics are spelled using the first letters of the four words. And the last three acrostics are spelled using the last letters of the four words. Why is that? It's because you'll see a change, and the third one is the pinnacle. It's the ch- change of the direction that all of a sudden God's hand is starting to become visibly at work. Also, every time an acrostic is spoken by a Gentile with the name Yahweh found in it, the name of God is spelled backwards. And every time an acrostic is is spoken by a, a Jew, God's name is spelled forwards of Yahweh. Why is that? Because even though God is at work amongst the unbelievers, they are unaware of it. Skeptics do not see God's hand at work, even if he's using them. But for believers... Eyes of faith, we see that God is at work. Also, we see the first acrostic was spoken about a queen, Queen Vashti. The second acrostic was sp- spoken, spoken by a queen, Queen Esther. The third acrostic was spoken by Haman. And the fourth acrostic was spoken about Haman. So those are four acrostics dealing with the name Yahweh. So you can, there's some more details, but you can go back to last week's message. The events of the book of Esther took place between 478 B.C. and 473 B.C., a five-year period. The captivity of the Jews in Babylon ended 60 years prior to the events in the book of Esther. All the Jews were freed to leave Babylon and return back to the land of Israel. The Jews could have returned to Israel and served God in their own land, but because of their backslidden condition the majority of them continued to live in Babylon, the land of captivity. The book of Esther had four main characters. There was Esther, a young, beautiful Jewess whose parents had died. She was probably around 20 or maybe even as young as 16. Mordecai, Esther's uncle and guardian, he was in his mid-40s. There was King Azarias, the absolute monarch of the Persian Empire, who was very unpredictable and hot-tempered. And Haman and Agite, who became King Azariah's most powerful noble, he hated the Jews and used his position of power to con- concoct a plot to annihilate the entire Jewish population. The story began with King Azarias giving a great feast lasting 180 days to celebrate his glory and the glory of his kingdom. At the climax of the feast, he commanded Vashti, his beautiful queen, dressed in her royal apparel, to parade herself before the king and his half-intoxicated guests. The queen refused, and the king was infuriated. The king sought counsel from his royal advisors, who advised him to pass a royal decree, stating that Vashti should be removed as queen and forever be banished from the king's presence. When the king cooled down, he missed Vashti and felt lonely. His royal advisors counseled him to gather the most beautiful virgins in his kingdom and the one who truly ravished his heart would become his new queen. This led to the king choosing Esther to be his new queen. Ultimately, God would use Esther and her position as queen to defeat the wicked plans of Haman to annihilate the Jewish people and it provided a great victory for God over the enemy of the Jews. The advice given to the king by his royal advisors to depose Queen Vashti contains the first of the five acrostics found in the book of Esther. This first acrostic is not making a statement about husband and wife relationships, but about God's sovereignty to place people in positions of authority and to remove them. In fact, of the five acrostics, all four of them form complete thoughts from those four words, except the first one. It's because this is not about God stating about husband-wife relationships, but about God moving people in and out of positions of authority. The issue is not whether the king should have been more reasonable or whether Vashti should have been more respectful. It demonstrates God's foreknowledge and sovereignty in preparing the way for him to meet a pending future need that had not yet become apparent. So God was moving Vashti out, And moving Queen Esther in. Not because Queen Vashti had done something wrong or anything else. But because God saw a need and was preparing for that future need. At the instruction of Mordecai, Esther kept hidden her Jewish heritage and the fact that Mordecai was her uncle. Mordecai commanded Esther to do so simply because like all the Jews who chose to remain in Babylon, he was fearful and backslidden. Basically, Mordecai said this, don't tell anybody you're Jewish and don't tell anybody you know me. So it wasn't an act of faith. It was an act of fear and of unbelief. Esther chapter 3 verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias, the people of Mordecai. Within five years of Esther becoming queen, two significant events took place. Haman, a wicked and proud man, an enemy of the Jews, came to power and became the king's most powerful noble. Also, Mordecai became bold in his faith and no longer hid his Jewish heritage. He refused to bow down or pay homage to Haman, since the Jews are to worship only God. So those two things happened. Haman came to power, but all of a sudden, Mordecai, his faith grew. And within those five years, he was no longer ashamed to be counted as part of God's people. And he is also no no longer willing to compromise his faith in God. Haman, in his arrogance and hatred of the Jews, sought permission to destroy the entire Jewish people. The king granted Haman unrestricted authority to carry out his plan. At Haman's instructions, a royal decree went out by courier into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, and one day, on the 13th day, of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So last week, we concluded at this point, Haman seemed unstoppable, and the situation the Jewish people faced seemed hopeless and catastrophic. This week, as we continue in the story, we will see how the Holy Spirit was working behind the scenes to bring forth a wonderful deliverance and a glorious victory. So starting in Esther 4 verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. And every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes." Mordecai and all the Jews did not collapse in despair and inaction when they heard the terrible news of Haman's plan to destroy the entire Jewish nation. Instead, they rose up in faith and responded by fasting, weeping, wailing, and putting on sackcloth and ashes. They were not passive, but they were active. God does not want us to give up, but he wants us to stand up. Although God is not mentioned by name, it is obvious that their fasting and supplication was an act of faith directed toward God, seeking his divine intervention. It is noteworthy that during this time of mourning, Mordecai expressed no regret for declaring his Jewish heritage or for his steadfast refusal to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Mordecai had recommitted his life to the God of Israel, he was now standing strong in his commitment, and as a Jew, he had resolved in his heart not to compromise his faith any longer. He would only worship and pay homage to the God of Israel, no matter what the cost. Even in the face of death, Mordecai's commitment to God remained unshakable. So we see this amazing change from being a backslidden believer, from being who was fearful, who was not confident in God, to one who declared his Jewishness, and also honored God alone, even if it would cost him his life. Esther 4.4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Esther was told of Mordecai's mourning, but she was unaware of the decree that Haman had issued. Living in the palace, she was sheltered from the news. She unsuccessfully tried to comfort Mordecai, not realizing the source of his sorrow. Verse 7. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, at that that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make up supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Now Mordecai informed Esther's messenger of all the details of the diabolical plot and the dire threat facing the entire Jewish population. He instructed Esther to go before the king and to intercede on behalf of her people. Verse 11. This is Esther's response. And all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Esther responded to Mordecai's command by explaining that she had not been called into the king's presence for 30 days. She further explained that anyone coming before the king without being summoned risked, the, uh, risked death unless the king responded favorably by extending his golden scepter. Now you say, well, that's sort of a a remote chance. No, in history they have found writings about King Azarias, and he was a hot-tempered, impulsive, uh, unpredictable man. In fact, one example found in the writings is that um, there was one wealthy noble in in King Azarias' kingdom who went to the king and he offered to pay the king's army to go and do an expedition so the king could have a great victory. The king was so touched by this noble's generosity and loyalty to him that he said, I'll give you back all your money, and I want to honor you, and he gave him many treasures. Well, a little while later, his oldest son of this man was conscripted into the army, and so the man, being very old, went to the king and says, could you please excuse my oldest son from being conscripted in the army so that in my old age he could take care of me. The king was so furious at that that he had the the boy killed cut in two and he had an army march between the two parts of his body. So when she said, this is dangerous, she meant, this is dangerous. (laughs) Esther 4.13 Mordecai's answer to Esther's response revealed a new level of faith that had risen up within him. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai warned Esther that her position as queen would not protect her because her fate was tied to the Jewish people she should not deceive herself into thinking she would be able to escape from the wicked plans of the enemy because of her position or power. In other words, Mordecai is saying, our deliverance is only from God. Where before he tried to protect himself by hiding his Jewish identity, now he says, no, only God will protect us. For if you remain completely silent, at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai displayed unshakable confidence in God by stating that even if Esther refused to help, then God would surely deliver them by another means. Mordecai's faith rose above the apparent catastrophe he faced and proclaimed, God has a plan. And even if people fail us, God will not fail us. Mordecai displayed confidence in God's providential hand at work behind the scenes. Although in the natural, the outcome appeared bleak and hopeless. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai was not totally certain that God had placed Esther in her position for such a time as this. To bring deliverance to God's people. However, he saw in the coincidence that she was in the right place at the right time, and that God's providential hand was possibly at work. In other words, sometimes we assume too much. Oh, God is doing this, and this is going to work out this way. We don't always know what God is doing, but we can be confident God is working. And he saw that possibly God has placed you in this position for such a time. He wasn't positive He was positive God was at work and he was positive that God is going to bring forth victory. He wasn't certain how it would occur. Trusting in God's providential hand does not mean we know exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing or how he's going to do it. However, it does mean we are certain God is at work and ultimate victory, victorious outcome, is a certainty. From the book of Revelation, we can ascertain... Certainly that the future events, how the future events, we cannot ascertain exactly how the future events of the end times will unfold. Those who try to pin down events sometimes arrive at erroneous conclusions. Like when I came to the Lord in 1976, I remember everybody thought the EU is going to be the Antichrist thing because there were 10 of them. Well, that didn't work when there was 10, 12, and it kept growing. So we said, okay, that book we threw out. So then somebody said, it's OPEC because there's 10. And then it was 11 and 12, and that, they threw that out. So sometimes people come with erroneous conclusions because they assume too much. However, from the book of Revelation, there's one thing we can be certain of. We win. We can be certain of that. We may not know all the details, but we can know that. Esther 4:15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are, in the present, who are present in Shushan and fast for me and neither eat nor drink for three days or nights. My maidens, and I will fast likewise and I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. So Esther was moved by the plight of her people and Mordecai's bold faith in God. She united her faith with the faith of all the Jews in Shushan by instructing them to completely fast from all food and water for three whole days and nights. Do not face difficult times alone, but join your faith with other believers in seeking God. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There is great power in unity. When you're going through a difficult time, the very worst thing you can do is withdraw from fellowship. But when you're going through a difficult time, reach out to other believers with common faith who will work with you and pray with you and seek God together with you for that victory. Then Esther made a bold and courageous statement of faith. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther declared her willingness to obey God even at the cost of her own life. Her obedience was not contingent on the outcome, but simply her willingness to obey God. Esther chose to obey and left the consequences to God. The reality of life is that we're all going to die one day. What better way to die than die doing the will of God? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Some people try to protect their lives and just live comfy, secure lives away from any conflict, hiding their faith. But you know something? They still die. So if you're going to die, better die doing the will of God than die not doing the will of God. Esther 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day That Esther put on her royal apparel, royal robes, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that i prepared for him. Queen Esther, dressed in royal apparel, stood in the inner court before the king, awaiting the verdict. The king was deeply touched by the appearance of his queen and extended his golden scepter. When the king extended his scepter, Esther viewed this as God's divine hand of favor, so she stepped forward and touched the top of the scepter. The king was so moved that he basically said, What is your request? Whatever it is, I will grant it. As Esther answered the king and made her request, the second acrostic is found in the book of Esther is hidden in her words. This acrostic contains the divine name of Yahweh spelled forwards using the first letters of each of the four words. Esther 5:4 So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And this is the acrostic. Let come the king and Haman this day. The name Yahweh is read in the invitation implying there would be a fourth person at the banquet. At this point in the story, it appears that Haman's fortunes were rising even to greater heights. He had received a special invitation from the queen to attend a banquet with the king. Haman was to be the sole guest of honor at a banquet Queen Esther herself had prepared for him. However, Queen Esther was carefully and quietly preparing to confront the enemy of her people. She did not know what the outcome might be or how the king would react. Would Azarias take the side of his most trusted noble, or would he come alongside his queen? Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Esther was standing in the valley of decision, the valley of the shadow of death. But the Lord was literally preparing a banqueting table before her in the presence of her enemy, Haman. And this was God's providence preparing the way. Verse 5. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may go- do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of, the, of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king... And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I have prepared for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. As Haman and the king were seated at the special banquet Queen Esther had prepared, her only request was that they should both come to a second banquet the next day. At that banquet, she would reveal her petition and her request. Verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. As Haman left the banquet, he was filled with joy and gladness for the honor he thought was being bestowed upon him. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. However, as Haman passed by Mordecai, his joy was short-lived and he was filled with hatred and indignation. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Verses 10 and 12 to 12. Nevertheless, Haman restrained restra- himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, and everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Mordecai, moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet which he had prepared. And tomorrow I will again, I, I again invited by her along with the king. Upon arriving home, Haman gathered his wife and his friends and began to boast of all his accomplishments, his many children, his riches and his glory. Haman topped off his boasting by telling them how the queen herself had invited only him and the king to a special banquet that day and how she had invited him again tomorrow. Haman was so filled with himself that if he sat on a pin, he would have bursted. Now you can imagine this guy's such a boaster. You know, there's his wife and his friends and he's saying, you know how many children I have? And I can imagine her rolling her eyes. I know I had every one of them. But anyways... But if you ever met a boaster, no one is impressed by a boaster except the boaster. You ever met a boaster? Oh, I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. I'm so smart. And everybody says, that guy is dumb. But anyways, so these guys, I could imagine this wasn't the first time they would hear him boasting over and over again. And they says, Haman's inviting us over. Okay, let's go over again. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I remember how many children you have. Yeah, I remember all your, your glory. Yeah, that's it. Anyways. However, in the midst of all his boasting and gloating, Haman blurted out the most ominous statement. Verse 13. Yet all this avails me nothing, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Esther 5.13 contains the third acrostic. It was spoken by Haman. It contains the divine name Yahweh, spelled backwards, using the last letters of each of the four words. This marks the turning point in the story. So all of a sudden, instead of the first letters of the four words, it's now the last letters. And it's God's name, Yahweh, spelled backward. Because in Haman's own words, God's name is hidden. Because God is at work. Yet all, so the acrostic is, Yet all these avail me nothing, so as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This avails nothing to me. Those are the four words that speak Yahweh. Haman's evil, proud, and envious heart gave him no rest. He couldn't even enjoy his apparent successes. Haman's restlessness and agitation drove him on and positioned him to meet his ultimate downfall and judgment. The very words he spake spoke Yet all this avails me nothing, signifies God's divine providential hand of judgment had given Haman over to the wickedness that filled his heart. Haman could find no peace or satisfaction, and God used this hatred of the Jews to drive Haman to his ultimate judgment and destruction. Romans one twenty eight. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. See, God does not give people debased minds. He does not give people hearts that are hardened. But when someone continues to resist God, it finally comes to a point where God says, I will give you over to what you have in your heart. So that bitterness and hatred that was in Haman's heart, God just gave him over to that. And that was going to drive him on to his ultimate destruction. Haman failed to realize that when he raised his hand against God's people, he was raising his hand against God. He who touches you, God's people, touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Isn't Zechariah 2 8 really a, a perfect description? of what happened in the book of Esther. Esther five fourteen. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. On the advice of Haman's wife and friends, Haman constructed a special gallows 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai and satisfy his hatred, pride, and vanity. Fifty is the number of jubilee. Jubilee is the number of restoration where what has been lost through adverse circumstances, neglect, or sin is restored to the rightful owners. The same gallows that Haman constructed for Mordecai would be used to bring an end to Haman and his evil plot and to restore the fortunes of the Jewish people. You know it's interesting that even the height that was chosen was not random. Haman would have thought, well, it's just a random number. Let's make it 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet high. But in reality, it was God who chose that Haman would have a build a gallows 50 cubits high because that would be where redemption and restoration and jubilee would take place. But Haman was totally ignorant of the fact that he'd picked that height. Esther 6, verse 1. That night the king could not sleep. So one who, commanded, who was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they, read, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told to Big, Bigthina and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Azarias. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. That very night, while Haman was building the gallows to hang Mordecai, the king just happened to have trouble falling asleep. The king was suffering from divine insomnia. The king, seeking for something to put him to sleep, commanded that the book of the Chronicles of the Kings be read. But instead of it causing him to grow sleepy, he was startled by the account of Mordecai saving his life. But even more start troubling was the fact that Mordecai had never been honored or rewarded for saving the king's life. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. God's providential hand dictated when Mordecai's lack of reward would be revealed. Remember last week we showed how Mordecai had heard about the plot and reported to Queen Esther. Queen Esther reported to the king in the name of Mordecai and the king's life was saved and those two received the severance package. So anyways... But then it says, but he was not rewarded. Now we may say, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why was he not rewarded? It was God's providential hand to wait for the right time. There'll be times in our lives where we will think it is not fair the way we've been treated. It's not fair. We have been overlooked or we've been downtrodden. But look at God's providential hand. He has a purpose in allowing that. I could imagine, you know, as the king, he was upset for, you know, shocked for twofold. First of all, there was a faithful man who hadn't been rewarded, and the second thing, there was a faithful man who had not not been rewarded for saving a very important person's life, his. I could imagine the king saying, what, "What what what reward did he receive?" They go, "Nothing." He goes, "Nothing Go, nothing, nothing. How can nothing be given to saving such an important man like me?" <laughs> Verse four and five. So the king said, who is in the court? No, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Toadlit cross purposes, the king pondered how to honor Mordecai who had saved his life while Haman returned to the king's palace to request permission to execute Mordecai. The king, upon hearing that Mordecai was waiting outside, was delighted and commanded Haman to come in to ask him how to reward Mordecai, who had saved the king's life. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let his robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor and then parade him on horseback through the city square proclaiming before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. When Haman heard the question, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor, Haman immediately concluded, he must be the man the king wants to honor. In his arrogance, Haman could think of no one more qualified, worthy, or honorable than himself. It's interesting that Haman before kept secret who he wanted to to kill, and the king kept secret who he wanted to honor. Then Then Haman provided the details of the most exquisite and pompous way for the king to honor someone. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse, and as you have suggested, and so do for Mordecai the king who sits within the king's gates. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Then Haman heard words that shook him to the very core of his being. Hurry, take the robe and the horse, and as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Haman was still reeling from the king's words when the king added... Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Every extravagant detail which he had wished to be lavished upon himself, he was forced to extend to Mordecai the Jew. Verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman was under the direct orders of the king Was the very one who had to take the king's robe, place it on Mordecai, and put him on the king's royal steed, and lead him about the city, proclaiming, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai, who had refused to bow down or pay homage to Haman, was now the one whom Haman had to publicly honor. Previously, when Mordecai refused to obey the king's command to bow down and pay homage to Haman, the people waited to see whose word would prevail, Haman's or Mordecai's. As Haman took the reins of the horse on which Mordecai rode and led Mordecai's horse through the streets of the city proclaiming words of honor to Mordecai, the answer to whose word would prevail became apparent, God's word. I could just imagine Mordecai sitting on that horse and Haman going around saying, this is what will be done to the man who the king wants to honor. And I can see Mordecai saying, "Uh, Haman, could you speak up? I can't hear you. And by the way, hurry up. You know, I don't have all day. I'm an important person. Haman may have held the reins, but Mordecai was in the driver's seat. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. The shock, the humiliation, and the disgrace that Haman experienced was, no, it was so overwhelming that once he completed his task, he immediately ran home with his head covered. Verse 13. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. Haman's wife, Zeresh, made an astounding prophetic statement of the impending demise of her husband, and also God's protection and provision for his people. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail Against him, But you shall surely fall before him. Things were quickly beginning to unravel for Haman. For when they say peace and safety, then su- sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains from a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Imagine this. He's, his glory is going on and now he's even having a, a special banquet with the queen and all of a sudden, within moments, within a few hours, his whole world is unraveling. Verse 14, while they were still talking with, talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. While Haman was in a state of shock over the events of the previous night and his wife's ominous prophetic words, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly ushered Haman to a banquet like he had never attended in his life. It's interesting to see how Haman actually caused his own demise by trying to destroy Mordecai, by all those things. And you know, it's interesting, if you study World War II and you study Hitler, you know who defeated the Nazis? It was Hitler. He made foolish decisions after foolish. If he had left it into the hands of his generals, it was very possible Europe would be now a completely Nazi continent. Totally. It was very close. They could have very easily won. But he took control and he made one foolish decision after another. And his generals stood by helplessly watching him destroying the very victories they had gained. Because God gave Hitler foolishness in his mind to make foolish and arrogant choices. You know what they called him? They called him the Bohemian Corporal. That's what his generals called him behind his back. He says, this guy's strategies were so foolish. And his decisions were so foolish, and they watched him as he dismantled and destroyed his own victories. Esther 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on that second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. The king may have assumed that Esther's petition would be for some royal treasure or some extravagant royal gift. Instead, she pleaded for the king to intervene to spare her life and the lives of her people. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Esther five. 7, uh, 7, 5. So King Azariah answered and said to the queen, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? The king was utterly shocked to hear that his queen's life was in peril, especially in his own palace. With the king's heart stirred to the core and fiery indignation filling his bosom, he asked a question that contained the fourth acrostic in the book of Esther. Who is he and where is he? However, this acrostic does not contain the name Yahweh, but the remarkable divine name Yeah, which means I am. This acrostic is spelled forward using the last letters of each of the four words. It is, who is he, this man, and where is this man? What does the divine name, Eya represent? Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall we say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, "'Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, "'I am has sent me to you.'" When God appeared before Moses at the burning bush, he said, "'I have seen the affliction of my people, "'and I have personally come down to deliver them out of Egypt "'and out of the oppression of the hands of Pharaoh.'" Moses then asked, "'Who shall I say sent me?' And God said, "'Eya, I am has sent you.'" When King Azarias heard about the plot to kill his queen and her people, he roared out the words, who is he and where is he who should dare presume in his heart to do such a thing. Within those words is the acrostic, the divine name of the God of Israel. Ayah, I am. The great I am had come down and was on the scene. I am here and enough is enough. Who is this who would dare lift a hand against my people? Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it whatever way he wishes. God directly used King Azarias to accomplish his purposes. As the king asked who would dare lift a finger against his queen, Esther pointed to Haman and said, The adversary and enemy is the wicked Haman. Upon being found out, Haman was totally beside himself in fear and confusion. The game was up. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Haman had no idea that Esther was Jewish. Esther 7 7 contains the fifth and final acrostic and the one that seals Haman's fate. You see how quickly everything unravels. It was written by the inspired writer of the book of Esther, and it contains the divine na- name Yahweh spelled forwards using the last letters of each of the four words. Verse 7 again. It says, Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of the wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. That evil was determined against him. Against him, evil. Sorry. That, that was determined against him, evil. The king was so filled with anger that he walked out of the room into the garden. Upon his return, he saw Haman on the couch beside Esther pleading for his life. The king was enraged because he thought Haman was trying to violate the queen right in front of him. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, "'Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the the house?' The king uttered those words against Haman, and the king's attendants covered Haman's face." so the king would no longer have to look at Haman, who was so wicked. As the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And we see the first time, Haman covered his own face because of shame. And the second time, the king had his, his servants had his face covered because of his wickedness exposed. As the king was deciding what to do with Haman, one of the king's eunuchs looked out the window and spotted the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai the Jew. Seven nine. Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Instantly from the king's mouth came the judgment. Hang him on it. Verse ten. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, and he prepared for Mordecai, and then that he'd prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. As Haman hung on the very gallows he had constructed for Mordecai, the proverb was fulfilled, Proverbs twenty six twenty seven: If you set a trap for others, you will get caught in it yourself. If you roll a boulder down on others, it will crush you instead. Esther 8, verse 1. On that day, King Azarias gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. So the king took Off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Esther revealed to the king that Mordecai was actually her uncle. The king took the signet ring he had previously given to Haman and gave it to Mordecai, giving him all the position, power, and authority that Haman once held. Then the king At Esther's request, gave Mordecai the authority to write a royal decree to all the Jews who lived throughout the entire Persian Empire, permitting the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on one day in the provinces of King Azarias, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar." The king bestowed upon Mordecai great honor and authority and power. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue, white, and with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. We see how things change so quickly. Haman started just two days before great pompous. He ended up being, being executed on his own gallows that he built for Mordecai. And Mordecai receives all the power and authority of Haman, and he walks out dressed in royal apparel. Esther 8:16. the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city where the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. God not only redeemed the Jews from the hands of their enemies, but exalted them above those who once ruled them. As well, many of the Gentiles converted and became Jews. The stigma of being a follower of the God of Israel had been removed and replaced by deep awe and reverence. Esther 9.1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, On the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On that day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. God took Haman's wicked plan to destroy the Jews and redeem it so the Jews prevailed against those who sought to destroy them. The very day meant to be a day of destruction became a day of rejoicing and victory. Of the Jews, for the Jews. Verse 26. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jewish holiday of Purim was instituted. In Hebrew, the word Pur means lot, it is like rolling the dice, it's a game of chance, it's casting lots. Haman chose the month of Adar by casting lots. Haman thought he had chosen a random day by chance when he would destroy the Jews. The date was actually chosen by God, not the day for the destruction of the Jewish people, but the day of their deliverance and victory. In Hebrew, the word Adar means glorious. And what a glorious day it was when God delivered the Jews from all their enemies. It, was, it is fitting that the holiday is called Purim, chance. Because to an unbeliever, the story may appear like a series of coincidences. However, to one looking with eyes of faith, God's unmistakable providence is evident. The Holy Spirit was at work, the scenes weaving together what appeared to be unrelated events and details to produce an intri- intricate tapestry of victory and joy. Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the very day that Haman thought they had randomly chosen was actually the day that God chose for the victory for God's people and for God's glory. Why did God allow Haman to rise up in the first place? The rise of Haman was part of God's plan for a number of reasons. The rise of Haman exposed those whose evil motives were hidden so they could be judged just as the rise of the Antichrist will usher in God's judgment. Why is God going to allow the Antichrist? Because he's going to reveal all those who are given over to total evil to have their hearts exposed, their motives exposed, and the judgment will come upon them. The rise of, Am- uh, the rise of Haman was also important to rescue the Jews from assimilation. The Jews were comfortable hiding their identity and living in Babylon. Babylon. The people of Israel would have been destroyed by the slow process of assimilation. The crisis awakened their identity as Jews and the purpose God had given them. God used Haman to play a part in saving the Jews from annihilation, assimilation, and a re- reawaken their identity with God. Do you know that? If Haman had not come back, had not risen up, within a few generations, no Jew would know they were Jews anymore. They would have lost their identity. They were trying to blend in as best they could into Babylon, into the Persian Empire. But with Haman rising up, it forced them to come up. It actually, Haman was used by God to save the Jewish people from assimilation and from losing their identity and being scattered amongst the the peoples and not knowing who they were anymore. So what exactly does the divine name of God, Yahweh, mean? Hebrew is an unusual language. Each letter has a sound, a numerical value, and a pictorial meaning. The word Yahweh has four letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. This name of God is most often heard as Lord in English Bibles. Two of the words are the same, He, which means behold. The first letter is Yod, which means hand, and the third letter is Vav, which means hook or nail. So the word Yahweh actually means behold the hand, behold the nail. Hidden in God's divine name is his son, Jesus Christ. God is working in the details. The events of the book of Esther do not stop at the end of the book. Its consequences extend much further. Ezra and Nehemiah, who were both Jews, held important positions with the king and both were used in the restoration of Israel. Nehemiah became the king's cupbearer, one of the most trusted positions one could hold. You ever imagine, why would the king, Persian king, have one of the most trusted people as a Jew? It's because that king was the son of Queen Esther. And when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you begin to say, how is it that the Jews had so much favor with that king. See, within eight years of the book of Esther uh, being completed, King Azariah passed away and her son became king. One more outstanding fact is found in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It talks about those who left Babylon and came back in the second wave to Israel. And you know whose name is mentioned among those? Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai eventually left Babylon and joined his people in Israel. Mordecai, as an old man, returned to Jerusalem to participate in the restoring the Jewish nation and is mentioned in Nehemiah 7:7 with others who helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem even though by that time he would have been in his late 60s or early 70s Mordecai was one of those that helped lay the stones of the walls that protected Jerusalem Mordecai's vision for God's purposes was restored and he joined the people of God in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Mordecai saw the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt and God's people once again dwelling securely in the land God had given them. The man who had lost his vision and purpose and was ashamed of his Jewish heritage was now among those who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. You know for us there may be some here who have never received Christ and if you have never put your faith in Jesus, this morning is that opportunity. But there's others here who are believers in Christ, but maybe you've lost your vision. Maybe you've become discouraged because things are difficult, because the circumstances you find yourself in are are bizarre, or how's this ever gonna work out? How will God ever use my life? I've been a believer 42 years now, and there's times in my life where I thought, God, can you do anything good with my life? Can you do anything good with me? I felt so broken, so hopeless, but I kept looking to God. And God did something. And even times where I go through difficult times, I look to God and said, God, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I trust you. I trust you. And so we have an opportunity. If there's those that are discouraged, those who feel like, God, I'm not sure what, what's going on. Where are you in all this? God said, I want you to trust me that I'm working behind the scenes. And as you trust me, i weave together the circumstances to bring forth a great victory in your life and great fruitfulness, even though you may be going through a dark time right now. And for those who are doing well now, we are to encourage others to come alongside, to join our faith with their faith, to encourage them, to pray for them, to pray with them, and to speak words of faith and to believe with them for God's victory in their lives. God wants to restore his vision to his church. Let us together build the kingdom of God. Let us together build the kingdom of God. Could we all stand as we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your love. Father, we thank you, Lord, that even when we falter, even when we fail, you remain faithful, Father. But Lord, we want to walk with faithfulness, Father, that we could see your glory manifest, that we could see many come to salvation, Lord. This life is so short and so many do not know you. So many are lost. So many have not understood the gospel. So many have rejected the gospel, Father. Oh God, but even as we read in Esther that many of the Gentiles become Jews when they saw what you did. Oh God, that we would be used by you that many would come to Christ. Many would become part of your church, part of the body of Christ. Oh God, I pray this morning, Father, not only for this congregation, but for every believer in the city of London, for every church that you've planted, Father that you would bring salvation to this city, Father, that there would be a move of the Holy Spirit amongst your people, moving in our hearts, changing our hearts, making us people of faith, people that are willing to consecrate our lives for the glory of Christ. Oh, God, that we would see your glory. We would see Christ exalted, and we would see signs and wonders and miracles and healings, and it would be broadcast what God is doing in the churches in the city of London, Ontario, and that we would go forth and people would hear, and they would respond, Father, yes, Lord, your heart is salvation. Your heart is redemption. Your heart is healing. Your heart is to bring glory to your name. And I pray for those believers that are backslidden, Father, they who have hardened their hearts, Lord, that you'd work in their hearts to bring them to repentance, bring them back to you, that they would unite their hearts once again with your purposes, Father. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah.